compassion does not necessarily involve this mirroring response. Compassion is more understanding and caring for another's pain, caring for their suffering, and a motivation to act to support them, but not necessarily feeling their feels. You're listening to the Wisdom for Wellbeing podcast, the show that blends science and heart to bring you evidence-based tips and tricks for cultivating a healthy, wealthy, and meaningful life. Now, here's your host, therapist, yogi, and fellow full-life balancer, Dr. Caitlin Harkis. Welcome to Wisdom for Wellbeing. This is an episode that's really designed to reflect, to connect to, and to speak about what is going on in our world right now. You know, there is a lot of pain, a lot of suffering that I I feel that we are becoming increasingly aware of and trying to hold space for. And this can lead to different reactions, some of which might feel more helpful in terms of moving towards the empathetic, the caring, the compassionate individuals we want to be, and supporting both ourselves and those we are in close connection with to navigate this painful time, and those that lead us to tune out. Now, I use the words... Empathy and compassion, empathetic and compassionate in that description. And we're actually going to parch those terms out today. But first, I would like to share with you a little bit about where this episode is coming from. On Friday, I was walking to the playground with my daughters. I had them in the pram. And as we were walking there, I was listening to a podcast, a BBC briefing on what was going on with the war that is happening in the Ukraine right now, with Russia's invasion of the Ukraine. And they were speaking to a correspondent in Kiev. Now, the correspondent was a mother. She was at the park with her son. And as she was pushing him on the swing, she was speaking to the BBC, to the interviewer. And she was describing what was going on in Kiev in that moment. You know, the sirens that they had woken up to, the immense fear and anguish that individuals were experiencing as they were realizing that they had stayed and that leaving may no longer be an option for them. So she was at the park trying to carry on, trying to support her son to enjoy that moment whilst she was describing the pain, you know, the fear. And I found myself flooded with tears. You know, here I was walking to the park with my own children. I felt this very clear connection with this woman in what she was describing. And suddenly it wasn't what she was describing her experience. I was feeling it. I was feeling the experience. I was feeling the anguish. I was feeling the fear. I was feeling the heartbreak, that sense of being torn in providing one's child, a sense of security while navigating the wilds of survival emotions that were welling up inside. And my impulse, 
my impulse was to turn off that broadcast to stop listening because it felt immensely uncomfortable. And this is because what empathy actually is, is a mirroring of another's emotional state. And in fact, in your brain, you have something called mirror neurons. Now, mirror neurons are essentially neurons that fire in alignment with another's felt state. So when we say, what's it like to walk a mile in another's shoes, the empathetic response is to actually feel what it would feel like to walk in another's shoes. And this is really important in terms of seeing another as ourselves, you know, and what we would sometimes say is a compassionate response. However, compassion is somewhat different. Compassion is a different experience, both neurophysiologically and in terms of the um, action that it might preempt. So just to go back to empathy then, I feel anguish because you feel anguish. I was feeling anguish because I felt this woman's anguish. Okay, so it's you feel, I feel. It's this mirroring response, which of course then may lead us when we're experiencing strong, difficult emotions, lead us into a survival response, that fight or flight. When we are overwhelmed, when we are flooded, we want to fight, (laughs) to flee, or to freeze, to shut down. When we are flooded, when it's all too much, we shut down, we turn off, okay? So that is the urge to turn off the broadcast or to numb out, to disconnect from what is going on with another because it all feels too much, so to speak. Compassion does not necessarily involve this mirroring response. Compassion is more understanding and caring for another's pain, caring for their suffering, and a motivation to act to support them, but not necessarily feeling their feels. So one can hold space for suffering and have a desire to support someone through their experience to act in a way that is kind, that is caring, but it doesn't necessarily involve feeling what they're feeling. And this is important because in having that space, in having that sense of, oh, this is an individual suffering, this is an individual's experience, we're more able to maintain our groundedness, our rootedness, and not become flooded with the strong emotions, with the difficult experiences that one might be having. This is actually incredibly supportive then in that motivation to act, because if we are not flooded, we can act clearly. We are not tuning out. We are not disconnecting. We are not moved into that fight Um, freeze response that is so associated with survival. Now, 
Compassion can be a trait, which means that individuals who've perhaps formally engaged in compassion practices and the like are able to embody a compassionate trait very regularly, or it can be a state moving into a moment by moment compassion um, cultivation, compassion state of being. So in the moment when I noticed my urge to turn off this broadcast, my overwhelming anguish to not want to feel this way, you know, to not want to hear anymore, I was able to deliberately evoke a compassionate state. When I go in, for instance, to the therapy room, I'm very clear that I have a compassion practice prior. So I go on with the lens of space holding. This wasn't a deliberate evocation when I turned on the podcast that morning. So I got kind of caught off guard by my empathetic response, which isn't a bad thing. It's a human thing. And in fact, empathy is hugely important for humanity. I certainly don't mean to infer that it's a bad thing to feel empathy. In fact, empathy is what allows us to feel what another's feeling, to see their humanness, and the inability to harness an emotionally empathetic response, you know, to be able to feel what another is feeling can be quite difficult for people and may not necessarily support pro-social behavior at times. So I think that this is important to remember. It's not a bad thing to feel empathetic. However, if it's leading you to then freeze, to flood, to feel overwhelming distress that prevents you from showing up the way you need to in your life for the people you are responsible for, for your sphere of influence, then I think it's something we need to go, okay, this is not helpful right now. So what are our options? And that is why I think compassion is such a beautiful practice, a useful practice for all of us. It's something that's hugely important in caregiving fields, as well as in humanitarian fields. And I think as feeling human beings in the world right now, it's vital. You know, it isn't that long ago that we first heard we were entering a pandemic. We've had years of overwhelm that come with the unknown, the difficulty in this and the device of nature that we have likely all been experiencing through the pandemic, the pain that comes with that. You know, there are immense amounts of suffering globally and not there is certainly suffering from the pandemic. You know, we're well aware, those of us sitting in privileged nations, the death toll and the toll on different healthcare systems or lack thereof in terms of healthcare systems around the world, you know, the differential access to uh, vaccination and more up-to-date treatments is very apparent and that's hugely painful. You know, it's not that long ago that we were sending donations to support efforts in Afghanistan, which continues to be an ongoing challenge, as well as immense poverty that is experienced by individuals around the globe, you know, children included, people continue to die of malaria, you know, preventable uh, malnutrition, preventable 
um, diseases, prevent, very preventable causes of death. So then adding on to this, suddenly we recognize that there is a war unfolding in Europe. It's a lot. It is a lot. And we can hold it. However, we also have to know that we have agency, that we can do something. A hugely important part of compassion and being able to enter and hold a compassionate state, being able to move into that caregiving, into that helping lens is a sense that we have agency, we have some control, we can do something. So what can we do? What can you do? You know, we have different platforms, whether it's sharing with family and friends what's unfolding, whether it is discussions on social media, advocacy, if we have financial resources, you know, if we can afford a cappuccino, a coffee a day, could we be donating, you know, the cost of to a humanitarian organization that is on the ground, you know, navigating and supporting individuals that we know are currently experiencing suffering. You know, can we do that? Can we research effective organizations? And ultimately, this sense that we have agency supports us in moving from compassion, you know, holding compassion to altruistic action, to action for the benefit of another, which for a lot of us will align very clearly with our values, with our sense of purpose, with who we want to be showing up as in our lives. And when we are in a compassionate state, when we've cultivated compassion, we can move to altruism. You know, we say compassion fatigue, but I don't feel, and a lot of the research is now suggesting that that language actually isn't um, effective or an accurate description. It's often empathetic fatigue that burns us out, that leads us to distress, to a state of anxiety, depression, you know, flooding. If we can move into an empathetic state, we have a lot more capacity to hold. It's that empathetic trauma, you know, vicarious trauma, essentially feeling the trauma of another that can lead us to mental ill health ourselves. And this is not simple because some of us are more likely to feel the feelings of others. And this is where the trait of sensitivity comes in. We're all wired a little bit differently. We're all wired differently in that, you know, even speaking to the mirror neurons, some of us might have more, some of us might have less. So some of us might be more caught, more felt in terms of another's emotional experience. So it's important that all of us, you know, particularly those of us who might be more sensitive are taking care of ourselves right now so that we have more to draw on. Because if we are going to be caught, we need to have reserves to be able to hold that. And also to notice when we've moved into that state where we are fight, flight, or freezing. And how do we bring ourselves back? How do we ground back? 
And I don't necessarily think that it's helpful all of the time to listen through the immeasurable suffering that might be described in podcasts, on the news. You know, I think we need to be really mindful about the media we are consuming. So my example of continuing to hear this woman's story, I'm in no way saying that's the right thing to do. It was what I felt I needed to do at that moment to get a sense of what was happening on the ground for me to make a decision as to my action. But I don't necessarily think that's always the right action. And in fact, personally, I consume very little news because I don't necessarily feel that it supports me in terms of effective action and being able to stay well enough to hold the space that I choose to hold, um, you know, in terms of family, community, vocationally. So it's getting really clear on how we support you. You know, if you're listening to this and you are feeling overwhelmed, I see you, (laughs) you know, I feel you, (laughs) I really feel you. And I suggest that this is a time to go, what do you need to do to take care of yourself right now so that you can take care of your family as you need to and your community? Do you need to step back? One thing that has garnered a lot of research in terms of the cultivation of compassion is actually compassion-based meditation practices, including meta practices or loving kindness meditation practices, that we can actually cultivate the muscle of compassion. And we'll see that differentially in terms of brain scans. When they do brain scans of individuals trained in compassion, including monks, we actually see decreased amygdala activation when presented with painful scenarios. So the amygdala is the part of the brain that governs our fear response. When we are flooded, it's likely that our amygdala amygdala is highly, highly active, you know, sensing fear all around. And when that happens, we necessarily move into the survival response in the prefrontal cortex, the part that supports us in um, appraisal of a situation, in clarity, in groundedness, which might support then effective action, kind of goes offline because we're in a survival response. So if in the engagement of meta and loving kindness meditation practices, we can actually downregulate the amygdala's responsiveness. That's incredibly empowering in terms of holding space for the suffering that is in fact unfolding. You know, pain, suffering can be languaged out differentially. I think the same way empathy and compassion can be, but that's another conversation. So if we can hold space for suffering for pain more effectively, then we can harness our agency to make change, you know, to show up in a way that reflects our values. And when we say caregiving, I think it's actually really helpful. When we think of a crying baby, for example, a really distressed baby, the, the compassionate response is holding the baby, soothing the baby, and being with the baby in their suffering. For one to be flooded by the baby's distress, one would be in tears and dysregulated themselves, which actually doesn't help the baby then in terms of feeling safe and secure and held. It's really important that we're able to ground ourselves to hold to soothe in a caregiving role 
And I don't mean to um, suggest an, a movement towards you know, assuming that individuals who need our compassion are <laughs> infantile, we all need compassion from others. And in fact, individuals who can remain grounded when we are suffering are the individuals we'll often tune to. Certainly an individual empathetically reflecting our anger when we're angry can feel really good at times or, you know, our sadness. When we feel sad, we can feel seen. But in moving through our suffering, it's often the people who aren't so flooded by these experiences that support us in navigating our experience, our felt state. So there are benefits in terms of humanitarian actions, altruistic actions, as well as connecting with those around as we cultivate our muscle of compassion. So what I would like to offer is a loving kindness meditation, and you can download it if you go to drcaitlin.com backslash loving kindness meditation. I think that that might be a helpful place to start, you know, as you practice compassion, as you cultivate that muscle in yourself, I wonder if it might become easier to hold space for the suffering in the community right now. And please don't be shy about turning off the news, taking care of yourself, you know, doing the things you need to do to be well. I don't think it's helpful for all of us to 24-7 be dwelling on the current state of affairs because that will derail us from our efforts to show up as we need. Go do the things that bring you joy, that bring you vitality, that ignite in you a sense of awe and wonder in the world. When you are healthy and well, it's going to be more easeful for you to catch and flip into the compassionate state that you need at times of suffering. And when you are well, when you are delighted by the world, in the world, I wonder if it'll be easier to give, to share, to actually show up and act compassionately. There's been some really interesting research that also has made a move from historically humanitarian efforts when they were, for instance, raising funds to support children in great suffering, which show images, for instance, of a really malnourished child, you know, and what that looks like to evoke this sadness to support individuals to then reach into their pockets, for instance, and give and donate, you know, either financially or in terms of um, charitable action and volunteer work. The move has been more to show images of children in, for instance, more empowered states in delight so that individuals can see the benefit of their action, you know, the benefit of their donation, of their volunteering to cultivate, you know, the, the sense of, of joy and transformation that's possible. Because often seeing the really distressing images actually leads to this fear response, this powerlessness, and then individuals individuals are less likely to act. We act more when we feel like we can transform. And similarly, when we talk about the story of one individual, one person suffering, we feel like we can support that individual. We as humans want to support that individual. When we talk about larger groups, we freeze because that feels overwhelming. And there's this sense, well, what can I as one individual do? And I think 
this is really um, important when we hear, you know, the story of the starfish. I'm trying to think of where I heard this. I think it might have been in one of Jack Cornfield's books. There's an individual walking along the beach and there are hundreds of starfish that have washed ashore. And this individual is taking the starfish and throwing it back into the ocean and taking the next starfish and throwing it back into the ocean again and again. And a man comes along and says, what are you doing? You're never going to make a difference. There are hundreds, thousands of starfish here. You're never going to make a difference. And the individual, the boy who's throwing the starfish into the ocean replies by picking up another starfish, throwing it into the ocean and saying, well, I just made a difference to that one. You can make a difference. You can make a difference. How can you make a difference now? Perhaps as you turn off this podcast, you might Google you know, a humanitarian organization that you might like to volunteer with, share the media about, make a donation to. Perhaps you might call a loved one who you know is struggling and hold some space for them. Perhaps you might take a few moments to ground yourself and research, you know, how how you share this with younger people in your household. If it's appropriate to be sharing this, it depends on a child's age as to how information around the current state of affairs is shared. What do you need to do right now to empower yourself for action and to care for yourself? Again, if you go to drcaitlin.com backslash um, loving kindness meditation, you'll find the audio, the guided audio meditation. I'll also put a link to a few websites there where donations can be made generally, as well as in terms of specifically donating to the people in the Ukraine right now. May you be well, may yours be well, may compassion, you know, pervade your heart, your life, and our world. Bye for now. Thanks for joining us this week on the Wisdom for Wellbeing podcast. Please visit drcaitlin.com to connect find show notes, other episodes, and to subscribe. While you're at it, if you find value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating or perhaps simply tell a friend about the show. Wisdom for Wellbeing is not a substitute for professional, individualized mental health treatment. If you are in crisis, please contact 000, your local emergency number if you are outside of Australia, or attend your local hospital ED.